Tonight we come to a fitting conclusion to our time in this section of Exodus that is known as the Book of the Covenant. Beginning toward the end of Exodus chapter 20 and all the way through chapter 23, this section of Exodus called the Book of the Covenant is a collection of laws. Some of them are uh, laws that are more generally applicable across the board, that are almost what we might call universal moral principles. Other laws are were stated in more case-type format in the sense of, like, if this happens or if this condition is met or if this situation arises, then here's how you respond in that situation. But all of these laws grew out of the foundational words that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And the last part of chapter 23 is kind of a conclusion to this book of the covenant. And essentially what it does, as many covenants of the ancient world often did, this concluding part shows what each party is responsible for in the covenant relationship. And so the first part of this passage reminds Israel what God will do for them and how he will lead them and how he will guide them and protect them. And then the last part of the passage reminds Israel of what they owe God, of the loyalty and the obedience and the faithfulness that they owe him. And so there are there are responsibilities, obligations, promises made in this covenant relationship. And both sides are looked at in this particular passage in Exodus 20 or 23 verses 20 through 33. So let's read this passage together and then we'll go through it together. Verse number 20, the Lord says, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a, a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land, 
and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, thank you for the time that we have to spend in your word tonight. I pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Help us to understand and to receive your word as it is the very word of God. And may your spirit illumine us and cause us to welcome and accept your message into our hearts and apply it to our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In this passage, the Lord promises to guard and to guide his people to their ultimate destination. So at the beginning, we talked about how this conclusion of the book of the covenant shows the, what each party is responsible for. So from the side of God, God promises to the Israelite people that he will guide them. He will guard them and he will bring them to their ultimate destination. So we see in the passage that he will lead them to the land of the Canaanites the land of the Hittites. He will bring them in and he will drive out from before them their enemies. He also says in this passage that he is going to send an angel to guard along the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. So the Lord promises to guard and to guide his people, bringing them to their ultimate destination. Now, one of the ways that God chose to guard and to guide his people is by sending them an angel. Now, there's been a lot of commentary written on who this angel is in verse number 20. And I'm just going to run through a few of the options that I came across in some of my reading. Some throughout church history, interpreters have suggested that the angel is, in fact, the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire that has been guiding them along the way thus far. And so that's one suggestion, that that it is the pillar of cloud, this manifestation of God leading the people. That is one possibility. However, the way that this angel is presented in this passage, it seems to be more personified, almost in more person-type form than the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire. Uh, Other commentators have said that This is not necessarily a real angel, but this is just a literary device talking about how God is going to guide and protect his people. Uh, Others have suggested that this is a human messenger. The Hebrew word malach can mean messenger, just like the Greek word angelos can mean messenger. And so some have said that this is a human person. Some have said Moses, that Moses would be their guide and that he would lead them into the promised land. Well, the problem with that is that Moses never reaches the promised land, right? So Moses doesn't seem to be the best candidate, even if it were a human messenger. There is a very, very old church tradition, church interpretation, going all the way back to Tertullian and Augustine, that this angel is Joshua, Moses' right-hand man, the one who succeeds Moses when they go into the promised land. In fact, uh, Augustine says that he looks to verse number 21, and at the very end of verse number 21, where it says, since my name is in him, 
And Augustine makes the argument that the name of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, is the exact same name as Jesus in the New Testament. And so he makes the case that this is Joshua, a forebear or a a type of Christ who comes later in the New Testament. And Joshua is the one who leads the Israelites into victory and leads them into the promised land. So that's, that's another option. It's a very old interpretation going back to very early in church history. One of the problems I have with that view is that I think it seems to be reading a little bit too much into the statement that the name of God is with this angel. And also, Joshua has not been very prominent in Exodus thus far. So in just reading through the story of Exodus, uh, we've not encountered Joshua very much at all. And he doesn't seem to have taken this kind of a, this very important role, at least thus far in the story of Exodus. I tend to think that this angel is what we would normally refer to as an angel. It is a heavenly being. So it's not a human messenger, but it is a heavenly being, a spiritual being. Then the choice comes down to, okay, is this one of God's angels Or is this, as we've seen in other places in the Old Testament, even in Exodus, is this the angel of the Lord? Which the angel of the Lord is an angel, but is so closely identified with God that we could even say that the angel of the Lord is God. And the angel of the Lord then would be like a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, a theophany, a Christophany, if you will. And so many, many interpreters, I would say probably the vast majority of evangelical interpreters take this as the angel of the Lord, that it is uh, Christological in a pre-incarnate Christ. And so this angel is so closely identified with God that he is God. And I think that's a very valid interpretation. And I'm almost... There, I'm like 49.51%. I see the arguments for that view. I lean a little bit more on the view that this is just an angel of God. An angel, one of his angels. And the reason I come to that conclusion is in this passage in particular, he is never referred to as the angel of the Lord specifically. And nor is he even called the angel. It is, it is indefinite. It is an angel. And another reason, probably the strongest reason for me, that I don't see this as the angel of the Lord or as a, as an, as a manifestation of God himself, is because of chapter 33, verses 1 and 2. In chapter 33, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Lord says. The Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now that sounds very much like Exodus 23, doesn't it? I will send an angel and I will drive out these Canaanites from before you. So verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. 
because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. And so Exodus 33 makes a clear distinction between Yahweh, the Lord himself, and the angel that he will send with them. And so I don't take it that it is the angel of the Lord or a or God himself manifest as an angel. I take it that it is one of the angels of the Lord. And this fits with what we see in other places in Scripture with the work of angels. Because the work of angels oftentimes in Scripture is to come and to serve God's people, sometimes to protect them, sometimes to help them in situations. Like, for example, we see an angel coming and and helping the Lord Jesus even in his time after his uh, time in the wilderness. Uh, We see angels coming to the defense of Israel in times of battle. And so this angel as a guard of protection and as a guide of leading seems to fit very much what we see of other angels in, in the Old Testament. And so I take it that this is a spiritual heavenly being, but just one of the company of angels that, that God has created to serve God and, and to serve his people. And so this is a messenger, an angel, a spiritual angel of God coming to guide and to protect the Lord's people and to help them arrive at their intended destination. Now, this angel is, however, so I want to make a distinction between an angel and the angel of the Lord. I want to make that distinction. But I also, because of the way that this angel is described in the passage, it seems that this angel has been entrusted with great authority. This angel has been entrusted with great authority and with great responsibility such that this angel can stand for God and represent him. And if the people refuse to listen to this angel, it is akin to them refusing to listen to God. And I think that's what it means when the Lord says, and my name is with him or my name is in him. In other words, God has chosen and designated this angel and he has put on him his stamp of approval, if you will, his name on him. And so the Israelite people are responsible to obey him as if they were obeying the voice of God himself. So he says, pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. And so this is a stern warning to the Israelite people to to listen to and follow this angel of God. And this is for their good, isn't it? This is for their good. This is for their benefit so that they can arrive at the destination that God has prepared for them. And in verses 22 and 23, we see that as they obey the Lord's angel, the Lord promises to protect them, to defeat their enemies, and to bring them to their appointed home. So he says in verse 22, if you listen carefully to what he says, that is this angel, and if you do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies, and I will oppose those who oppose you. So if you obey, this is a, this is a conditional covenant. If you obey, God will go out before you and he will fight your battles and he will defend you. He will be an enemy to your enemies and 
a foe to your foes. That reflects what we understand God's relationship with Abraham to be from the very beginning, don't we? The Abrahamic covenant, God came to Abraham, made a covenant with him, made promises to him. And one of the things that God said to Abraham is this, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So anyone who takes up sword against the Israelite people, God is opposed to them. He will fight for Israel on their behalf. Verse 23 says, my angel will go ahead of you. And he will bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I will wipe them out. So this is from God's side. This is what he will do. This is what he promises for his people. I will guide you. I will guard you. I will protect you. I will fight for you. And I will bring you to your appointed home. Now, the other part of the passage, though, is the Lord expects certain things from his people. So he promises certain things to his people, but he also expects certain things from his people. And what he expects from his people in verses 24 to the end of the passage is he expects exclusive worship and he expects obedience. So he expects exclusive worship and obedience from his people. We see in verse 24 the expectation of exclusive worship. Verse 24 says, Do not bow down before their gods, or worship them, or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Now, we know from Israelite history that they didn't do a very good job of this, did they? From the scriptural testimony itself, we know that the Israelite people did not do a good job with this command. In fact, in just a few chapters, we're going to read about them taking all their gold and making a golden calf to bow down and worship to it. And all the way throughout their history, they struggled with the false worship of the gods of the Canaanites. They worshiped Baal. They worshiped Ashtaroth. They worshiped Molech. They worshiped these other gods, specifically the ones that God told them to not worship. And not only did he tell them to not worship them, he told them to, when they got to the promised land, to eliminate all of the vestiges of that false worship. So when you go in there, don't save this stone that was a sacred monument for the worship of their gods. God says, I'm not interested in preserving their culture. I'm not interested in preserving their history. I want anything that might remind you of or be a temptation to you of this false worship. I want it obliterated. I want it gone. And the Israelites failed to do that. They failed to tear down all the false altars. They failed to tear down these sacred poles, these Asherah poles. They failed to tear down these sacred groves of trees where the Canaanites would worship. And they constantly fell into this false worship. And we ask ourselves, why is it that the Israelite people had such a hard time with this? Why was this idolatry, their their besetting sin? And I think it is helpful for us to remember that the worship of the Canaanites was not just getting down on your knees before a piece of stone. 
or a piece of wood. That, that wasn't the extent of their worship. In fact, some of their sacred religious ceremonies involved sexual practices. So you can see the appeal. You go and you worship these false gods, but it's very self-serving, isn't it? It's very self-serving. It's very pleasurable. And in the worship of these false gods, they were hoping for and they were praying for good crops. Healthy, large families for fertility. Baal was the Canaanite god of fertility. And so they went and they participated in these pagan practices as a part of the worship of these false gods. Now, fast forward several thousand years to 2018 in America, and all you have to do is strip away the pieces of stone and the pieces of wood, and we're doing the exact same thing, right? We have turned sexuality into a god in our culture. Sexuality is a god in our culture. And to prove that, if you get in the way of the train of their agenda, of what they want to hope to accomplish in terms of making homosexuality and deviant forms of sexuality and and throwing gender out the window and everything else, if you get in the way of that, you will get run over. And you will get persecuted and you will get... You will receive the, the, the violence of the mob against you. That shows you how devoted they are to their gods. They're worshiping them. We have false gods all around us. We just don't have the little statues to go along with them. But that was the appeal. There were several things that appealed to them, and all of it was self-serving. Well, we have the, that same appeal today. And all the false worship, all the false idols that our culture has to offer, it is always devoted to the self. What makes me feel good, what gives me pleasure, what gives me success, what gives me status, what gives me a high, whatever it is, it is always self-referential. So was the false worship of the Canaanites. But the worship of God was different. The worship of God was not self-referential, it was God-referential. God is the center. God is the focus. To him be the glory forever and ever. But God commanded them to worship him and him alone. And this is just a reflection of the first and second commands, isn't it? No other gods before me. No statues, no stones, no graven images of any kind. So he's just reminding them of what they have already said they would do. He expects exclusive worship from them. And as they obey, then, there are blessings that flow to them. There are covenant blessings that flow to them. And we see these in verses 25 through 31. So the covenant blessings are a blessing on your food and water. God's going to provide for you. He'll provide your basic necessities of life, food and water. I will take away your sickness from among you. So... Blessing of health, taking away plagues and diseases so that they would be in good health. I will take sickness away from you. None will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. So fertility of family and long lifespan. Now, here's the irony. 
isn't some of these things, some of these things, isn't what that they were going to worship the false Canaanite gods for? So let's go worship Baals for, so we can have a large family or so we can have good crops. And God says, obey me, follow me, worship me alone, and I will provide for you. I will bless you. But they became so short-sighted that they wanted to, they wanted a quick fix. They wanted it on their terms. And honestly, that's what a lot of idolatry is, is worship on our terms instead of on God's terms. But God promised to bless them. A long life. Verse 27, I will, I will have victory over your enemies. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation that you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. And so God promises to give them victory to go with them into their battles. He promises to deliver the promised land into their hands. I'll give you that land. Verses 29 and 30, though, put a little asterisk on that. And God says, I'm not going to do it all immediately. I'm not going to do it all in a year. But I'm going to progressively give you the promised land. I'm going to progressively drive out these nations from before you. I don't want it to become a wasteland. So I'm not going to take all the Canaanites out immediately. I don't want it to become a wasteland. I want you to grow and increase and take it over year by year and expand and fill the land of Canaan. But we know the history of Israel. They never fully fulfilled that command, did they? They never fully drove out the Canaanites. They left some of them there. They left some of their remnants of their worship there. And it became a snare to them. Exactly what this passage is warning about. God promises to give them expansive boundaries. Look at the boundaries that he promises to give them in verse 31. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the desert to the Euphrates River. That is a large piece of the Middle East. And the boundaries of Israel only got close to meeting this description in the days of David and Solomon. And even then for a short time. God says, I'll bless you. And one of the reasons why the boundaries only lasted that very short time is because the people fell into rebellion and disobedience, didn't they? And so their land started to shrink. And eventually God sent them into exile. So with covenant obedience comes covenant blessings. With covenant disobedience comes covenant curses. So follow me and you will be blessed. And then at the very end of the passage, there is a renewed call for vigilance against false worship. Verse 32, don't make any covenants with the people in the land. Don't enter into any agreements with them. Don't, don't give any agreements even to their gods. No allegiance, no loyalty, no pledges to their gods in worship. No association at all with the pagan peoples. Verse 33, do not let them live in your land. Now this sounds very harsh. God says earlier, I'm going to wipe them out. Verse 23. And he says, you're going to completely drive them out. Verse 32 and 33, he says, I don't want them in your land. 
You're going to drive them out before you. Don't make any covenants with them. Don't even let them live in your land. Why? Is it because the people of Abraham were better ethnically or racially than the people of Canaan? No. It's because God had chosen this people, and he knew that the Canaanites, if they were to stay in the land, that their paganism, their wickedness, their idolatry would become a trap, would become a snare to the Israelite people. And indeed it did, didn't it, throughout their history. There's a lesson in that for us as Christians. Now, we live, in a sense, in the middle of a Canaan-like land. In that, we live in the midst of pagan people. There are Christian people, there are God's people, but there are also pagan people within this land. Now, we don't have the same mandate that the Israelites had to drive them out, right? So, don't go out and start driving out your your pagan neighbors, okay? But we live in a land with Canaanites and Perizzites, if you will. Our mandate is not to drive them out. Our mandate is to share the gospel with them. Our mandate is to be a witness to them. But as we do that, we do have to be careful about this warning, don't we? About the possibility of living in the midst of a culture that is working opposite of God's ways. And that's what God was warning his people about here. If you let the Canaanites stay there, they will become a snare and a trap to you. Now, we can't drive out unbelievers. That's not what God wants us to do in this age. He wants us to witness to unbelievers. But he does want us to be on guard against the snares and the traps that go along with living in a world of unbelievers. And that's why Jesus prayed for us. In his high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prayed for us and he said, Father, I pray that they would be in the world, but not of the world. Now, to be in the world, but not of it, like it, swimming with the flow of our world, that takes grace. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit, but it also takes great zeal and diligence on our part. To seek to, to live wisely and righteously and justly and faithfully in the midst of a world, in the midst of a culture that seems to be growing increasingly more hostile to the Christian faith. So we need wisdom. We need strength. We need grace to not let the world around us become a snare and a trap to us. So praise God for the guidance and the protection that he offers to his people. And now to take that forward into the New Testament, even though I am not convinced that this angel in Exodus 23 is the angel of the Lord or Christ in pre-incarnate form, I would say that now in the New Testament, we do have a very clear guardian and protector, don't we? We have a very clear redeemer, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will bring us to our appointed home, won't he? Just as this angel was appointed by God to bring them to their appointed home, which was the land of the Canaanites, Jesus Christ says, I have gone away to prepare a place for you. And where I am, I will bring you to myself, that you may be with me also. 
Jesus is our great guardian and deliverer and guide. He is our faithful shepherd and he has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us and he will come back and he will lead us and guide us into our appointed home. Praise God that he has given us that promise that he will bring us safely home. And now he calls on us to worship him and him alone. And he calls on us to obey him. And he calls on us to swim against the flow of a godless culture that is around us. So may we do that as he gives us the strength and the grace to do that. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, you are a gracious and merciful God. We thank you for the way that you sent your angel to lead and to protect your people Israel as you brought them to their appointed home. We thank you that you fought for them. We thank you that you led them through that barren wilderness and provided for them along the way. And we thank you for the picture that that paints of your grace and your care for your people. And as we think about what you are doing for us now in the new covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are moved to abundant praise thinking about how Jesus, our Savior, is guiding us home. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. Father, help us. We live in a world, in a culture, that more and more is exhibiting wickedness and perversity and calling that which is evil good and that which is good evil. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength, the grace to swim against the current of that culture. That we would be your faithful people and worship you exclusively because you have bought us. We are your redeemed people. Lord, bless us as we as we dismiss tonight. Help us to go out into our world to be the salt and the light that you have created us to be. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.